0: we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for this word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. That together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made. That we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us. And that we might honor you more along the path. Praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, how many of you here today, uh, maybe not in possession today, but how many of you here today still have your very first Bible? Anybody here still have your... That's a good number. Let's put those hands up again, because now I want to take another guess. I'm going to guess that for the majority of you who raised your hand, your first Bibles is a King James, yes? <laughs> a few of you know, but... Uh, I still have my very first Bible, and it is the King. Uh, I can remember when I received it. I don't remember the date, but I'm going to check when I get home and see if it's in there. It was probably about 1967, 68. Uh, King James, leather, red letters, probably about three colored bands running through it to mark different places in the Bible, And uh, I remember where I was when I got it. Carnegie Hall. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Carnegie Hall in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I grew up in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and we always had an annual missions conference at Carnegie Hall. And um, after one of those Sunday evening, after one of those uh, services, my mother gave me my first Bible. In it, she wrote, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Wonderful verse, by the way, for summarizing the entire teaching of the book of Proverbs. Uh, We are, in fact, in a series of eight sermons this fall on the Songs of Ascent, which are uh, songs for life's journey. Trust in the Lord and your journey will just be smooth and straight. Uh, The problem is it's just not always that way. Keeping in mind that the book of Proverbs is kind of like ninth grade biology. It's true, there's just more to learn when you go to undergrad and study more sophisticated biology. And so God's given us books like Ecclesiastes, Job. To help us navigate life when the path is not quite so straight, uh, quite so smooth. And in that same vein, God has given us Psalm 126. One of those prayers for life's journey. This morning, a prayer for restoration. We can probably all look back to times in life when life was just like a dream come true. We had been experiencing some kind of negativity And God worked in one way or another just to restore us and to reverse our circumstances. We can remember the joy and the happiness of what that was like. But the joy of those past days don't always characterize someone's present. Sometimes a new adversity comes along. And God understands that, and so in the book of Psalms, he gives us this prayer for restoration. And through Psalm 126, the Holy Spirit teaches us how to navigate present adversity uh, by doing two things. You may notice in your text, especially if you're reading something like an NIV, which I read, or an ESV, you may notice that um, right after verse 3... And right before verse 4, there's some extra white space in your translation. That's because the modern editors are basically saying this prayer has like two paragraphs in it. And each of these paragraphs has its own focus. And so we're going to follow each one of these and see how the Holy Spirit teaches us to navigate present adversity. And the first thing He teaches you to do in navigating present adversity is to remember the past. Because that's what the psalmist is doing in the first half of this psalm. Let's just look at it. He starts by saying, we were. See the past. We were like those who dreamed. We remember when life was like a dream come true. But it's in the past for us. We were like those who dreamed. And when was that? Well, the text says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of his people, at least that's what my translation says. Although my translation, the NIV also gives a footnote, and in that footnote, it says, uh, or brought back the captives. Uh, Restored fortunes or brought back the captives. Now, some of your translations may say brought back the captives. Most of our translations probably say restored our fortunes. Uh, Restored our fortunes is no doubt correct. That's the best translation. That's very general language. It's very likely that for this psalmist, he had something specific in mind when he said the Lord restored our fortunes. And what he had specifically in mind was when God brought us as his people back from the Babylonian captivity. So even though the language doesn't mean bring back captives, it's very likely referring to God's restoration of our fortunes when he brought us back from the Babylonian captivity. And we were like, at that point, people who dreamed. It was like the psalmist says, a dream come true true. In verse 2, he says, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. This is beautiful Hebrew poetry. Notice the movement. Notice how the, song, the psalmist moves from our mouths to something more specific, our tongues, and how he moves from the more general laughter to the more specific songs of joy. He's just piling up words with this kind of dynamic movement because he's just underscoring how thrilled we were at who God was and what God had done in our lives. We can think, each of us, of times in our lives that were characterized by that kind of joy, that kind of laughter. And then he goes on to say, the Lord has done great things. And there's a principle in the Bible. It's called the testimony of two witnesses. Uh, in the Old Testament, you could not be convicted of a crime based on one witness. If there's only one witness, you couldn't be convicted. Why not? Because that witness might be malicious. That witness might just have it in for you and make up lies. So you could never be convicted of anything on the basis of one witness. There had to be a corroborating witness, the testimony of two witnesses. And notice that that's what we have here. It was said among the nations. Look at what the Lord has done for those folks. I mean, what God had done for us was so evident that even people who were not in our circle, but outside of our circle, were testifying to how good God was and what the Lord has done great things. And then we add our testimony to it. Yes, you're right. The Lord has done great things for us. And notice that note once again. We, well, here's a little problem with the translation. Notice that our translations, most of them probably say, and we, what's the tense here? Let's do a little English. We are glad. Yeah, see, we've been talking about the past. Uh, we were like those who dreamed when the Lord restored, and then all of a sudden it shifts and says, we are glad as if right now in our present, we're glad. Well, there are two reasons why that's just and and trust me, I know the people who do these translations. I mean, some of them, many of them I know personally. Um, but as my dissertation advisor once said years and years ago, even Homer nods. Uh, and sometimes I look at translations because I, I do this kind of thing professionally. Sometimes I look at things, these translations and I just scratch my head and I just say, What were they thinking? This is not like real sophisticated, uh, deep discourse analysis, Hebrew syntax. Uh, You know the verb that is translated in that first line, we were glad? It's the exact same verb. That's not hard. We were. Were filled with joy. The Lord had done great things for us, and we were, back then, filled with joy. So just looking at the verbs, it's obvious that this isn't, we are right now filled with joy, but it's, we were filled with joy. And the other thing now that makes sense is, uh, why, if we are filled with joy, uh, are we saying, Lord, restore our fortunes again? Why are we describing ourselves as those who are going out weeping, sowing with tears? See, that's not the case. That's why our translators have put this big space in between these verses. Because those first verses are describing back then. See, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that when we are in the middle of present adversity one of the things you can do for your soul is to just take time to remember the past. To remember those past times when God restored your fortunes. To remember how you were like, it was like a dream come true. To, to rem- this is kind of remembering the good old days. Remembering what God had done and how people joined in, and how there was the testimony of two witnesses, those outside in your own testimony. The Lord had done great things for us, and we were really just filled with joy. Space in between that verse and the next one. How do you navigate life when it's not smooth, when it's not straight? When it's not prosperity, but it's adversity. The Holy Spirit teaches you one wonderful thing to do for your soul. And that is to remember who God is by remembering what he had done. And the impact of that on your own lives. Remember restoration in the past. But then there's that space. What, what's, the, what's the focus of this second paragraph in the poem? Ask for restoration in the present. Notice how the psalm uh, goes on to... Well, first of all, notice that in verse 1 it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of. And then in verse 4 it says, restore our fortunes, Lord. You see that repetition? This is one thing Hebrew mothers taught their kids. See, when when we were learning how to write, uh, our mothers whether our mothers were our biological mothers or our teachers. Our mothers taught us when you want to mark a new paragraph, you can do it one of two ways. How do you do it? Indent. Our mothers taught us to indent to show people that we're kind of moving on to another subject. What was another way they taught us to mark a paragraph? Double space. You leave leave some extra space. Well, Hebrew mothers didn't teach their kids to mark their paragraphs that way partly because they weren't teaching their kids to write. They were teaching them to recite. This was a predominantly oral culture. So their kids weren't learning all the time to write, but they were learning how to create poetry, how to create literature. So here's what Hebrew mothers said. If you want to signal to people that you're starting a new section... One one little trick you can use is repeat material at the very beginning of that second section that you have at the very beginning of the first one. When the Lord restored our fortunes, restore our fortunes. That repetition can serve to say, we're starting a new section. The whole book of Jonah, by the way, is divided in two. The first half starts, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, get up and go to Nineveh. Second half starts, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, a second time saying, get up and go to Nineveh. You see how we were going to repeat that material at the beginning. To that Hebrew mothers taught their kids. This is how you mark paragraphs. And so now we're in a different paragraph. And in this paragraph, the Holy Spirit is teaching you when you are having to navigate present adversity to just ask God to restore your fortunes. In other words, ask God to repeat the past. Ask God to do for you now what you know He's already done for you at some point in the past. When we're asking for things that are unknown, it's difficult to have the same level of certainty that they're going to come about. The Holy Spirit is saying, you already know what God can do. You've already experienced it in your own life. You haven't just read books about it. You've experienced it. And ask God to do for you again now in your present what he's already shown up to do for you at some point in the past. Restore our fortunes. Then there's this seemingly strange line. Like streams in the Negev. Like streams in the Negev. We've talked about this kind of thing before. Uh, if, If we were all in St. Louis right now, and I said, after the service, let's all go down to the river. Would anybody say, which river? You wouldn't, would you? I wouldn't have to say, let's go down to the Mississippi, would I? We all would know what I mean by the river. And that's an illustration of how ancient authors... Use geography. Geography is one of the most fun things to study when it comes to wanting to get a better understanding of the Bible. Because you see, the authors were like people in St. Louis. They would say things like, let's go to the river. By the way, in the Bible, when it just says the river, it doesn't mean the Jordan, like we might think. It means the Euphrates. And the authors, the ancient authors, presumed the audience knew the river was Euphrates, so they didn't have to say the Euphrates, right? In the same way, when authors give any kind of geographical referent, they presume that people know. Like if I say the Indian River, I can kind of presume that you know the river to which I'm speaking, yes? Yes? But if I were in California preaching this sermon this morning, I couldn't say the Indian River and presume that people would get it, right? Because they don't know it. And so the poet says, like streams in the Negev. And man, when the poet said that, the people were just elated with joy and emotion. They got it, but we don't. Negev is is, uh, southern, southern Israel, It's dry. Gets less than 4%, less than 4 inches of rain a year, sometimes 2 inches of rain a year. It's not a place where you have streams. About the only time you're going to get a stream in the Negev is like what some of your backyards were like yesterday when it rains. When it rains, those dry wadis, those dry riverbeds in the Negev, all of a sudden they're going to become rushing torrents. This is like, surprise, streams in the Negev. You've got to be kidding me. Streams in the Negev? Rain in the Sahara? That's kind of what it's like. Rain in, It would be like rain in the Sahara. Surprising. Extraordinary. Unanticipated. Refreshing. Picture a Midwestern farmer after an extended drought standing in the rains that are breaking the drought with joy in his heart like streams in the Negev. Don't limit God. When you need restoration in present adversity, Don't be limited by your past. Don't be limited by your preconceived ideas. God can show up to do do things for you in the present in the most extraordinary ways. He can show up in ways that you have never anticipated at all, like streams in the Negev. He can show up in ways that can fill your heart with unanticipated joy like streams in the Negev. He can show up in ways to refresh your soul, to to bring restoration into any area of your life, like streams in the Negev, those transformative streams. How do you navigate present adversity? You ask God for restoration in the present. You ask Him to do for you now even if it's in completely unanticipated ways to do for you now the same kind of thing that you know he's done for you in the past. Ask for restoration in the present. Ask God to repeat the past. Just flat out ask God to reverse your circumstances. That's what we see in verses 5 and 6. Notice it refers to those sowing with tears. The beginning of verse 5, those who sow with tears. The beginning of verse 6, those who go out weeping, carrying their seed bag with them. They're going out at the very beginning. They're not sure what the end is going to look like at all, but they're going out by faith. They're going out by faith that their meager activity is going to produce fruit, a bountiful harvest. But when they go... It's tough because the adversity hurts. So they're sowing with tears. They're going out weeping. And if adversity brings tears to your eyes, if it brings weeping to your soul, you are not weird. You are normal. It's part of the journey of life. I wish it weren't the case. But it is the case that along life's journey, we experience very frustrating, very perplexing, very painful at times, adversity. Adversity that in the moment fills our eyes with tears. And we have to take the next step. If we're going to sow, we've got to take the next step. We take that next step not with joy in our hearts, not with great confidence, but with weeping, carrying our meager seed bag with us, expecting that God's going to produce a harvest, uh, maybe a hundredfold. But then notice in the latter part of each of those verses, reaping with joy. They'll come in uh, reaping with songs of joy. They'll return with songs of joy, carrying this time not a seed bag, But sheaves. Remember, I told you Hebrew mothers liked to teach their kids to repeat things. Uh, We teach our kids to vary their vocabulary so their writing isn't boring. Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat things so that people would get the point. Do you notice how in the end of verse six and the end of verse. uh, 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 I mean, it, it At the beginning of verse 6 and the end of verse 6, we have those two references to carrying. They go out carrying their seed bag, and they come in carrying their sheaves. Do you see how God is reversing their circumstances? They're going out carrying just seed, but they're coming in carrying a full harvest. They go out with tears and with weeping, but they come back with joy and with songs of joy. God's reversing their situation. Pray for God to repeat the past and pray for God to reverse your circumstances. And the reason why in particular that you can pray for God to reverse your circumstances is because that's just who God is. Sometimes we we think about biblical theology. Well, you might not. I do. And, you know, sometimes people are on the search. Old Testament scholars have always been on the search for what's the center of Old Testament theology. What's that one focal point? And some have said, why, it's obvious it's the kingdom of God. And others have said, why, it's obvious it's the covenant. And if it's obvious to some that it's the kingdom and it's obvious to others that it's the covenant, it must not be quite so obvious. Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we're trying to like look at a diamond and we're trying to say, which is the most beautiful facet on this diamond? Maybe we need to forget that question altogether and just continue to turn that diamond and enjoy all of the different facets so that we might think of writing an Old Testament theology on the theme of kingdom. And we might think of writing another Old Testament theology, looking at it through the lens of covenant or looking at it through the lens of house building or looking at it through the lens of temple building, or looking at it through the lens of God, the great reverser. I've never read one of those. Don't have the time to write it, but it sure would be fun. Just think about it for one moment with me. Going all the way back to creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. God wants to make a world for you and for me, for us as the human race, to thrive in. There's a problem. In Genesis 1-2, it's just too wet, water, water everywhere, and it's too dark. There is no light. It's wet and it's dark. Well, what does Genesis 1 basically go on to tell us? It goes on to tell us how God reversed that, didn't he? God reversed the wet and the dark by creating dry land, having said, let there be light in you can't read past the first chapter of genesis without having a revelation of god the great reverser of course we could give many other examples let me just mention a couple hannah at the beginning of the book of first samuel hannah is by the way a symbol of all of israel Because this is the period of the Judges. This is one of the lowest points in Israelite history. Just read the last four chapters of the book of Judges if you can stomach them. They're horrific. Showing us how far God's people had fallen down and how much they needed God to reverse their circumstances. And at the beginning we get this beautiful story of Hannah. Hannah's barren. And she wants so desperately to have a child. And she's weeping, she's sowing with tears, such that the high priest thinks she's drunk, and he says, no, you've misunderstood me. That's the bitterness of my soul, weeping with tears, carrying her seed bag as she goes, crying. And then God reverses her circumstances, and in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, she comes back singing songs of joy, carrying her sheaves, his name was Samuel, with him. God, the great reverser. Or we might think of another woman, Naomi. I know we call it the book of Ruth, but it's Naomi's story. Naomi is empty. By the way, Naomi has no seed. Her husband is dead. Her sons are dead. She has no seed meaning sons. She also has no seed meaning grain because there's drought and famine. She's empty of all of her seed. Until God, through the marvels of this heroine named Ruth and this hero named Boaz, God comes in in extraordinary ways, unexpected ways, reverses her circumstances. So that by the end of the book, she has seed abundantly. It's the harvest. First, the barley when they get back to Beit Lechem, the house of of grain. And then the wheat. She's filled up with seed grain. And then Ruth has a child, but the text says that it's Naomi who has the child. A child has been born to Naomi, and the child is on Naomi's lap. And the child's name is Obed because he's going to take care of Naomi in her old age. How marvelous is God in reversing her circumstances. Or we might think of the nation of Israel. And once again, how deeply they had sunk into sin so that God kicked them out of the land and sent them away into captivity, into uh, Babylon, uh, uh, modern-day Iraq. And they were living with no temple, with no king. And God, through a most unexpected source... A pagan king named Cyrus, king of Persia, who happened to beat up the Babylonians. Through that pagan king, they're restored, they're brought back, they're sent back to their land, they're given financial resources from the pagan Persians in order to rebuild the temple of the Lord. God, the great reverser. Of course, all of these are small in comparison to the greatest reversal. That reversal when Jesus lay dead in the grave for three days under the power of death. But what did God do for Jesus? He radically reversed his circumstances, didn't he? By raising him from the dead. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the fountain of all possible reversals. All reversals that have happened in the past have happened because God raised Jesus from the dead. And of course, the greatest reversal that we're looking forward to is our own resurrection from the dead. And how can we expect that great reversal? I was listening once again to that song in that great getting up morning, Fare Thee Well, Fare Thee Well. How can we expect to fare well? How can we expect that there is going to be a great getting up morning? It's because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so our grandest reversal in the future is guaranteed. But where do you need that resurrection reversal to come into your present reality? It can come into your present reality. It can come in most extraordinary ways. Who would have ever thought that God would bring about ultimate cosmic reversal? The restoration of all things in heaven and on earth as we not coincidentally read about in Psalm 96, so that the whole creation is shouting for joy and singing because God has come to restore all things. That's what judgment means. He's come to put everything back into right order, judge the world in righteousness. It's because of that great resurrection that we can have hope that God will come into our lives now as the one who has shown himself from beginning to end to be the great restorer. I wish life were just like my mother's verse in my King James Bible, that all you had to do was trust the Lord and it would be smooth sailing for the rest of the journey. We just know from Job and from Ecclesiastes and from the testimony of our own lives, it's often not quite that simple. How do you handle those present adversities? All oh, just two things. Remember your past. Remember those times when God has done great things for you and brought powerful restoration so that it was just like a dream come true. And then ask God to do for you now what he characteristically has done throughout the pages of scripture and throughout the lives of his people. Just ask him in his mercy and in his grace to once again restore your fortunes. And ask with confidence because Jesus has been raised from the dead. One of my favorite verses in the Bible comes from the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 30, the second half of verse 5, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, weeping may remain for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Let's pray. Father, you uh, you are so good in your mercy and in your kindness to reveal yourself to us, In this psalm and throughout the scriptures and in our own lives as the one who is the great reverser. And, you know, each one of us, you know, those large areas and perhaps even some small areas in our lives where things are not as they should be. And where we need you to do for us what you have done in the past, do great things for us. Holy Spirit, by this word, encourage us in our faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word. Increase our faith that you are able to do great things for us now because Jesus has been raised from the dead, even in the most extraordinary and unanticipated and unexpected ways. And for this, we will be careful to give you thanks. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.